Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes, for whatever reason, you get a glimpse at an industry or a workplace or even a community that you're not normally a part of, and you start to think, what? This system makes no sense. I can't believe an outsider is seeing something that people on the inside seem oblivious to. Well, that happened to Gary Slutkin. He's a doctor, and he'd been out of the country for over a decade. I left my work in Africa and World Health to come back to Chicago and to the U.S. just to come home and to take a break. And when he got back about a dozen years ago, he noticed a trend that captivated him and really worried him. I just began to look at graphs and charts and maps like any epidemiologist would, and it just appeared to me the same way, that it was behaving in the same way as other infectious disease problems. And so it was interesting enough to say, well, what if we looked at this in that way and began to treat it in that way? The problem, he noticed, was violence. Much of it clustered in urban areas, and it felt obvious to him that this was a health issue, not an issue of criminality. See, the key part of all this is that this is a health epidemic process, and we've not been managing it correctly. Because And so it's been a stuck problem, in case anybody hasn't noticed. And we in, in health, in public health, at World Health Organization, we always know problems get stuck. Malaria got stuck for many, many decades. Cholera, diarrheal disease got stuck. This problem has been a stuck problem because we've been looking at it through a moralistic view rather than the scientific view. When you treat this like an epidemic problem with the right kind of health workers, outreach workers, interrupters, you can bring neighborhoods down to zero. Slutkin felt like an outsider because the American people seemed to have already decided how they felt about violence, but he wouldn't let it go. He borrowed from what he had learned in Africa, treating AIDS and cholera and other infectious diseases, and he trained up a group of interrupters who started to interrupt violence, much in the same way that they might try to interrupt Ebola. And it worked. Why? Because contagions are contagious. And Slutkin, who's a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, says violence spreads not through shaking hands or sneezing on someone, but by simply seeing violence committed. The brain is processing violence to produce more of itself the same way that the lungs are processing TB to produce more of itself or the intestines are processing cholera to produce more of itself. And the exposure, instead of breathing it in or ingesting it in, is the seeing it or it having been done to you. Hmm. And then there's another factor, which is whether you think your friends expect it of you, which, of course, is also unconscious. So how close do you have to be to catch something? Like, if you saw it <laughs> well, on, on television, is that good no, enough? Or do you have to no, see it, it in, like, your next-door neighbor? No, it's no, it's real world, and it's, okay. it's proximity and context are essentially important. So, okay. I mean, little children who see it a lot in the home or it was done to them, they have a greater likelihood when they're in the next, you know, kids are under five and then more than they're more likely to do it, and it's dose-dependent. And if you have this, is, what's so interesting about this is that if you have all of these things that people keep talking about, about poverty and the schools are lousy and, 
and the fathers aren't around, all those things, but there isn't exposure to violence, then you don't get um, violence. Hmm. It's the same thing. You have um, housing projects and there's, you know, bad circumstances and crowding, nutrition's bad, and no one brings in AIDS or no one brings in flu. It doesn't spontaneously come. So you created this organization, Cure Violence. Um, Explain what violence interrupters are and and what they do. Well, I mean, just like when you have, let's say, an, an Ebola epidemic where there are people who are scared and they're you know, being told to change their behaviors from, you know, you shouldn't be touching your mother in this way when she's vomiting, or you should be burying your kid in a plastic bag. I mean, these are things that you can't be like ordered to do and all of that. You So that was out of control until health workers who could spend time explaining and understanding and, you know, helping to support people in a new set of behaviors. And that's when that um, epidemic went down to zero. And it's the same thing. These workers, I mean, we do this with HIV AIDS, talking to people about their sexual behaviors or cholera, about their hand washing or their drinking behaviors. And here, the violence interrupters are the cutting edge of this because they have to find out, you know, what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow as a result of an insult or an event or somebody was with a girl or somebody owed somebody money and someone is like about to do an event, like someone about to have TB to infect somebody else. So we have to get on that. And these workers who come from the same community have the access, have the trust, have the credibility, and they have the super training to be able to cool people down, buy time, and then gradually help them find their way to where it isn't done and they can feel okay about themselves for not doing it because they're now thinking more about their mom or their kid or however we've reframed it or the thing got resolved. And then we keep working with that person for six months to two years so that the next time that he is so insulted or aggravated or whatever that he wouldn't go in that direction either, just like we work with a TB patient, not just for his acute problem, but for keeping him um, until he is more likely to not relapse. And that's why since you, you know, if you're working on the events that are about to happen right now, and they don't happen, then the, the knock-on events, the retaliations, you know, the, the event leading to another, leading to another, that doesn't happen. And then, you know, in the weekend becomes better and the week becomes better. And pretty soon, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. You start to see weeks and months, you know, a year without any event or with events being rare. So you talked about these people, these violence interrupters, um, and you said they were from the community. How, how do you get somebody from the community who has credibility um, in the community to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to come in and sort of change the way this community is likely to do things and, and try to turn things on their head? Like, who are these people and how do you convince them to do things differently? There's a lot of criteria that we do here. It's, there's a lot of mapping. In other words, we have to find out who are the groups, where are the problems, and it's from the community is very, very uh, specific. You know, just like you need sex workers to reach sex workers or former drug users to reach drug users or refugees to reach refugees or whatever, you, you need to have people who are from the life who have a background themselves and having been involved previously and grew up with the same um, group or subgroup or part of the neighborhood. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Dr. Gary Slutkin, the founder of Cure Violence, which is a group that works to prevent violence with techniques similar to those used to fight infectious diseases. 
Can you give me a couple of examples over the years of incidents that stick with you where somebody knew, one of these violence interrupters knew about something or a conflict that was like about to happen and they got in there and somehow were able to diffuse the situation or just stop it from happening? Yeah, and it's not somehow, it's like reliably and it's every night and I have like dozens or hundreds and I could probably, we could pull anyone in here and tell you what they're doing right now or last night, depending on the city. But, and just to say that, you know, the evaluations of this showed that they're a hundred percent effective at, at preventing retaliations. And this is a justice department study, but the, in terms of the, what, I mean, one story that really resonates for me is a, this mom who, um, her kid, was loading weapons in the basement um, along with four or five of um, his friends. And she was really at wit's end and didn't know what to do. And of course, she's not going to call the police on her son. And so she called um, one of the interrupters in the neighborhood. And it's very easy to find out um, and to get their numbers if you don't have them yourselves. And from there, it, it just became, you know, that that person came over and called a couple of the other interrupters. And you know, the scene in the basement is essentially, you know, well, we don't know, we don't need you. We know what we got to do. And what happened next was, you know, what's going on. And they just go back and forth swearing at each other. But just a reminder that the people who walked into the basement are not like, really, who are you? Right, they're right. They're people right. they know. They know, right. Yeah, and they're not going to do any violence against them because they're people, they're, and one of them may be his cousin or one right. of them may, because there's a lot of cousins around or someone who, you know, who grew up with. And so they're not like backing, they're, they're back off, but they'll hear the whole story and one of them will start screaming about what happened and, and then he'll be engaged. And so the engagement is, you know, hearing the whole story and, you know, that's awful. It's really awful what happened. I mean, why? How could they do that to you? You know, how could he say that? And so then, you know, the person is getting validation, and we're buying time. Right. And so, and then, you know, pretty soon, you know, hey, we get someone else to come in, and there's a little bit of distraction going on. And hey, you know, I know you're just trying to cool us down. And I say, yeah, well, you know, that's it's better. And, um, you know, let's just get some food in here for a minute. You're trying to get them further and further away from that, like, moment of rage that spurred the violence, right? No, and this is also science. I mean, because part of your brain is really hot, and you you don't make sense when that's going on. So every time you're buying a minute or five minutes or half an hour, Mm -hmm. you're you're starting to win because things can cool down. And if you're getting validated and, you you know, you're— and this being validated is so important, you know, that, yeah, you're, this is awful, you know, we got to talk to them, we got to find out what's going, really going on here. It was actually an entire misunderstanding of, you know, what somebody said to somebody and what somebody said that somebody did to someone else didn't actually even happen. Because wow. we're, we've got other people who are now calling and talking to the other people who are now freaked out. So they're like getting their bravado going, but really they're scared out of their minds. Mm. And we're having to pass back information that, you know, it, it really was a misunderstanding. No one even said that. That wasn't even the guy who was there. Mm. And everybody gets overheated over very small things. If you think of this as a health issue, is it possible to cure people who have been exposed to violence? Yeah. I mean, so what does the word cure really mean? It's not exactly 100%. 
I mean, when you say people, are, someone is cured of breast cancer, we know it's not really 100%. It might right, be right. It could reoccur or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it, 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 do, it doesn't mean zero. I mean, it's only smallpox that we've brought to zero. But it means that it can be brought to the point where events are very unusual or rare. And for a person where his uh, likelihood of doing violence is likewise very rare. Hmm. So how has the public, just in general, just the lay public, responded to your ideas? Because I think uh, very often people do not think about uh, violence as a health issue. They think of it as a uh, moral failing, right? That if you do something violent, there is something um, amoral about you or you, you certainly had a lapse in judgment or whatever it is. So how have you found the public reacting to the things that you've said? Well, just to say something about that, and I'm so glad you mentioned it in that framing, because this is exactly the way we used to think about people who had leprosy or plague. We thought that they had moral failings, Hmm. people with cancer, um, mental illness, people with seizures. We saw them as, uh, as having moral failings, that they were bad, they had bad humors, or there was character problems, the reason that they had it. And the reason that we thought that way is because we didn't understand um, invisibly what was going on in the brain or in the body and so on. That's exactly the, the situation here. So the moral view is the default view when you don't understand it or know what's going on. And that's harder for a brain system processing than it is for um, a heart or lung or, hmm. or intestine or something because we think our brain is us. Right. But the way uh, I, I think the public is really warming up to this enormously, but what we, what we need is for the health directors and the health practitioners and hospital um, leaders and so on to be speaking more about this. Right now, the spokespersons on this issue are not the health people. And the language that's being used is very critical. I mean, we have like the scary language being used. You know, we use these words that are, are embargoed in um, in the health world, like criminal. Well, I feel like, you know, for a- as long as I can remember, politicians have run saying that they were tough on crime. And that um, that hasn't changed for 20 or 30 years. I mean, people consistently say, like, I'm going to I'm tough on crime or I'm going to be tough on crime or so and so is not tough on crime or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know what this tough is um, because it isn't working. Mm-hmm. But it is working in politics. And why is it working? It's working because people are afraid. And so um, anger trumps fear. People don't want to feel afraid. They don't want to feel afraid and they don't want to feel sad. So the emotion that helps with that is anger. And this, this, is, another, this is a real human failing is the idea of this is a problem, it's their fault, I can solve it, and I will, I'm channeling your anger. I mean, we're seeing this in other contexts as well. It's a real human failing, and it's a shame that um, politically it can be taken advantage of. But it isn't, uh, it, anger is not a solution to a problem. Emotions aren't solutions to problems. I mean, solutions to problems ordinarily come from really understanding them that's what we do in health. That's what we do in medicine. I mean, someone comes in with chest pain. We don't start screaming at him or blaming him and saying he's a bad person. We try to understand what's going on. Well, is it a heart attack? Is it a lung problem? You know, how we, and, then we, and then even within right. that, we right. try to understand what does it mean to have a heart attack? What's going on? How does the heart work? And then we apply right. solutions that are based on that understanding. And that's, a, a, that's the health way of approaching a problem. It's based on understanding rather than moralistic judgment. And then applying solutions that, that are uh, 
that work. And if it doesn't work, by the way, which is what's going on with violence in many places, just as in medicine, if something isn't working, you don't keep doing it. You say, wait a second, do they have the diagnosis right? And diagnosis has been wrong in violence. Do you think that this model only works for, we've mostly sort of been talking about it in the context of urban violence, gang violence. Does it uh, have implications for other kinds of violence, domestic violence, mass shootings? Can, can this have other uh, places where it's implemented? Yeah, and it, and it is being. Uh, first off, all of these are contagious. I mean, mass shootings get to become more common when people see uh, prior mass shootings, and there's ways to interrupt that. Family violence perpetuates itself from generation to generation. And these are also transmissible between themselves. And we see people who are doing mass shootings who were doing family violence before and who were bullied when they were young. We see people who are coming out of war settings who are then doing suicides or are doing violence mm. in their home. But we are applying at Cure Violence, and we're not the only ones who are applying this to interrupting a violent recruitment. We are uh, working on this in uh, North Africa and have been consulted in many cities in the U.S. on this. Uh, we're working in family violence with partners, with others who have expertise in fa family violence. So, yeah, these are different syndromes of the same problem. So what happens going forward? Um, 2016 was a rough year, especially in, in Chicago where you are because, I mean, we just saw uh, murders skyrocket. What happens both in Chicago and in other places, as far as you can tell? Well, I mean, let, let's just take the three big cities in the U.S. I mean, so Los Angeles has an adaptation of this um, approach that they've been applying since 2006 or seven. I mean, the chief of police there, Charlie Beck and myself, we presented this to um, the major chiefs meeting in Orlando a couple years ago. Los Angeles has turned a corner since then. And he will say this, although they're not um, police workers, they're um, what they call interveners there. New York City, there are 18 communities. It's in the city budget. It's in the state budget. There are 18 communities that are applying the cure violence model. Some of them have had very long streaks. Jamaica Plains, uh, well into the end of 2016, had gone 525 or 550 days without a shooting or a killing. Hmm. So New York and Los Angeles are using this approach fully, as are several other cities. Chicago has um, had an interruption in funding in March of 2015, and so it took exactly the opposite course. Gary Slutkin is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health, and he's the founder of Cure Violence. Gary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. On our website, innovationhub.org, we've got a link to a short film from Wide Angle Youth Media about Tard Carter, who worked as a violence interrupter with Safe Streets in Baltimore. And he talks, a lot like Slutkin, about how people model what's around them. You, you are what you see. You are a reflection of what, what you see. I couldn't have been older than seven, eight years old. I had a leather briefcase that I took from my stepfather. He was selling weed, so I used to see that. So I used to take parsley flakes and dump out all my mother parsley and put it in the corn bags. And now I run around the hood in my own fantasy world, like I'm a gangster. <laughs> but I have to keep him crying, man. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. 
Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Our lives are affected every day in a thousand different ways by the networks that we're part of. Those networks can affect our mood, our actions, what we consume, and what's available to consume. And in that consumption category, there's a product, you might think of it as trivial, but at least to me, it's a pretty big deal, chocolate. Christine Leslie is an expert on chocolate, and I think you could safely say she's a fan. I eat chocolate every day, so there's, and I start in the morning at breakfast and um, <laughs> typically finish late in the evening with a bite or two before I go to sleep. Wow. So, yes, Woman I, after my own heart. <laughs> I do. I do enjoy it. Leslie is a lecturer on global studies at the University of Washington, Bothell, and she's looked at the complicated networks that get chocolate to us, starting in Africa, where most chocolate begins. And right there at the origin, there is a strange paradox. You know, I spent most of my time in Ghana, which is the world's number two producer of cocoa. And the months I spent there in the field on the farms were definitely the months where I ate the least chocolate ever of my life. And it was a real irony because I was surrounded by cocoa. I mean, it's cocoa everywhere. You can't get away from it. You see it everywhere. You smell it. You can feel it and touch it, but not chocolate. She says that the farmers who grow the beans have some of the least access to chocolate of anyone on earth. Very few of them do know what it tastes like. Um, they, there's, they know chocolate. They know what it is. And there are traditions of, for example, if, if parents are traveling to a city, they will bring chocolate back for their children. Men will give it to women as a, a romantic gift. So they have, you know, some of the same ideas about chocolate as, as we do here. It is just a, it's a question of access. And in the rural areas, you know, I mean, cocoa farming is a rural endeavor. They do not have the same infrastructure. Uh, they don't have the infrastructure you need to support a chocolate industry. And by that, I mean a cold chain. And so because the the daytime temperatures are so high, they're too, chocolate will melt if it sits on a store shelf without refrigeration. And so in the rural areas, um, even just keeping chocolate around long enough to sell it is is a challenge. This idea of a cold chain, a way to keep chocolate at a safe temperature as it travels around, that, along with money, is why there's not a whole bunch of chocolate eating going on in wide swaths of the world. But there's a lot of money to be made if the melting point of chocolate could be raised. And not just in Africa, even in the U.S. in the summer, it's hard to get chocolate shipped to you in the mail because the temperatures are just too high. Not that there haven't been efforts to make chocolate less fickle. The military actually produced chocolates of high melting point, so they would survive the rigors uh, in the fields. Mark Giltonen is a professor of plant molecular biology at Penn State University. There's been efforts um, to market chocolate in tropical countries where um, temperature control is a big problem. And, and once chocolate melts, if it's not properly processed back when it solidifies, the crystallization of the butter will not be proper and, and basically the chocolate's ruins. Giltonen has been studying the cacao plant for years. And in 2015, his lab discovered a bit of a holy grail, the gene that controls the melting point of chocolate. Because here's the thing, 
That gene is a big piece of what makes chocolate great. The melting point's right about the human body temperature. So when it's on your shelf, it's, it's generally a solid form. You put it in your mouth, it starts to warm up, it slowly liquefies. And during that process, you feel it on your, your tongue and your mouth. And also the volatiles are released as a part of that process. The volatiles contain a lot. There's about 400 or so different molecules. So it's the slow release, the slow melting, the feel, and the release of these volatiles that combine to this sort of magic flavor of chocolate. Now the race is on amongst manufacturers, and there's actually only a handful of manufacturers that control most of the world's chocolate supply, to use Giltonin's discovery to bring chocolate to millions or billions more people. Here's Christine Leslie again. In Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, certainly, um, and of course China and India, these are the big emerging markets for chocolate. And without a cold chain in many of these areas, they can't sell without engineering a bar that can withstand higher temperatures. But Giltonen says that even as those wealthy manufacturers try to use science to expand their reach, they're running into one serious headwind, climate change. Essentially what happens is the ideal place to grow cocoa will shift and people will have to move where they're growing cocoa or or grow it in different ways. We are already seeing in some areas, um, at least farmers are reporting some, let's say, periods of low rain or drought or periods of very high rain sort of shifts in the rain distribution throughout the year. And that's really important for cocoa. It, It can't take drought. It can't take flooding. It needs a good distribution of water. That increases cocoa prices. It puts more pressure on industry and farmers get squeezed. Giltonen says genetic modification could likely help the chocolate industry cope with some of those pressures. But the key players have resisted genetic modification. So now, as the planet heats up, the race is on to raise the melting point of chocolate in a way that allows it to maintain the properties that so many of us have fallen in love with. At this moment in time, I'm very much um, enjoying my salted brown butter chocolate, either milk or dark. There's a company called Cacao de Colombia that's making a single origin chocolate from the Araco plants. And this this chocolate to my palate is, is just magic. You have all kinds of flavors of fruits and, and citrus and a really beautiful dark chocolate flavor. Christine Leslie is an expert on chocolate who teaches at the University of Washington Bothell. And Mark Giltonen is a professor of plant molecular biology at Penn State. We've got more on their work and on the melting point of chocolate at our website, innovationhub.org. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. If I sound a little sicker, it's because I recorded this couple minutes of the show at a different time than the rest of the show. But don't worry, I'm on the mend. So for a minute, let's take a dip into history for a story of one of the chocolate bars that you know and probably love. 
Around the turn of the century, a guy named Frank was selling food wholesale in Minnesota, but things were rough. His first marriage broke up, a court said his spousal support wasn't adequate, and his wife was given full custody of their son. And she sent the boy to her parents' house in Canada. His finances were pretty much at rock bottom. Then finally, around 1920, Frank's longtime love of candy making started to pay off. Candy was actually booming at this time, and small-time manufacturers were rolling out new sweets with crazy names. So here's a quote from Minnesota Monthly. In the Twin Cities alone, firms manufactured the Rough Rider, Chicken Spanish, Cherry Humps, Chicka Stick, Prom Queen, Fat Emma, Cold Turkey, and Long Boy Kraut. A guy named Milton Hershey had created the Hershey Bar in 1900, and America was head over heels for chocolate. Frank, though, was only a mild success until his son, the one who had gone to Canada in that custody dispute, came back to the U.S. as an adult, and he gave Frank an idea. Now, this is an idea that's going to sound crazy, but it was to put a chocolate malted drink inside a candy bar. And Frank stumbled on an ingredient. It was made by another candy company that might indeed put the taste of a chocolate malted drink in a chocolate bar. It was called nougat. And the candy bar that came out of that enlightened moment was the first truly massive hit for Frank Mars. It was called Milky Way. And the hits kept on coming. Snickers, Three Musketeers. His son came up with tiny pieces of chocolate that they called M&Ms. And Frank, who for so long had so little, found himself running a multi-million dollar company. He plowed some of those earnings into a farm in Tennessee that was almost 3,000 acres where he could train racehorses. And maybe not surprisingly, he named the farm after one of his greatest successes, Milky Way. Mars is now one of the largest privately held companies in the U.S. They do over $30 billion of sales in a year. And it's controlled to this very day by the Mars family. We will have a link to a 1967 story from Fortune magazine about Forrest Mars, who's Frank's son, that's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, with Mayo Clinic at its heart, DMC is a strategic economic initiative committed to making Rochester, Minnesota the world center for life science and health. Learn more at dmc.ms. If you've got a rifle, or a friend who's honestly more like a frenemy, what are the things they have that you really want? Maybe more money, maybe they've got a cooler house, maybe an awesomer job. Well, if you had a rival in the ancient world, on that list of stuff that you would secretly covet, and this is assuming your rival was actually a pretty big deal, was books. 
Take, for example, the ancient Greek city of Pergamon, which knew that, you know, taking stuff was all well and good, but taking knowledge made you part of an elite network. And Pergamon had their eye on this little library over in Egypt. Well, the Library of Alexandria was a kind of, it was the center of what was effectively a university. Scholars were given tax breaks to go and live there. They were, you know, they were fed, they were watered, they were given accommodation. That's Keith Houston, author of a book on the history of books. He says Pergamon had a bit of a rivalry with Egypt, which could get ugly, especially when they were fighting over very desirable scholarly works. And at one point, the king of Pergamon actually tried to poach the head librarian from the, the Library of Alexandria. And so the Ptolemies had him clapped in irons so, so he couldn't respond to the job offer. Um, it's like it was like getting the, the the really hot CEO or the really good like NBA player of the time. Like you want the best librarian, so you go and you find them. Absolutely, the Pergamines, uh, as they were called, were very acquisitive when it came to books and librarians. There was a, there was a village nearby that owned a set of scrolls that had belonged to Socrates, and when they heard that the Pergamines were coming, they buried them because they knew that the Pergamines would somehow find their way to taking away this very valuable <laughs> library of Socrates' scrolls. So they were people people were terrified that they would actually steal their, their books. Think about a world like this, where getting your hands on a book was kind of like getting a suitcase of cash or a bar of gold, except better. Because it gave you access to science or math or philosophy, and that could revolutionize your society. Houston's a software engineer who became obsessed by how books originated and how they've changed us. He's the author of The Book, a cover-to-cover exploration of the most powerful object of our time. And he says books, even in the most loosely defined way, started altering our lives from the moment they came into being. People were writing on clay tablets three or four thousand years ago, and then hieroglyphics followed fairly shortly after that. I think most historians who study books would tend to consider uh, scrolls, papyrus scrolls, to be the first books. Okay. And if that's the case, then there's evidence that we've been using them for about 5,000 years. So hmm. the book has been, I guess you could say, changing lives pretty much for as long as we've been writing on them. You know, they're one of the best ways to store information, and so they kind of tell their own story. When people were writing scrolls or, you know, books uh, thousands of years ago, were they writing things that most people could read or that like a very select elite group of people could access only? It does seem to have been just an elite. I think sort of literacy rates, even in Greece and Rome, where a few, you know, it was barely a few percent of the population were capable of reading. And so just just by definition, it was it was an elite pursuit. I think also the the cost of producing books made a big difference. If you can't print something, then it is very time-consuming to copy a book. There was just never the technology to let books become the kind of ubiquitous thing that they are now. Hmm. So at what point did books go from being, as we were saying, sort of the province of the elite? A few people can read them. Maybe what they say is very valuable and maybe it affects a lot of people's lives, but it's not like a lot of people can pick up a book or a scroll and say, hmm, interesting, that this is, this is fascinating, and absorb the material. When did that start to change? You might argue that Christianity was perhaps a major factor in that. Hmm. So 
Christians liked to write stuff down in a way that hadn't really been true of of the the pagan Romans uh, before them. So Judaism had always written down stuff. That, you know, scrolls are very important to Judaism, but I think perhaps it might even it might even be as late as the arrival of printing. That's when it really becomes democratized. That's when there is the ability to make books that can be cheap. I think there was a there was a printer in Venice called Aldus Minutius who kind of pioneered the idea of a small pocket book and a cheap book at that. He would print thousands of copies of an individual book rather than just a few hundred. And they'd all be quite small. You know, you you'd recognize them as being the size of a modern paperback or even a bit smaller. Huh. And that was the first time where it was possible to to make that number of books and to make them affordable. The idea of I guess the affordable book, the market for affordable books starts there in Venice towards the end of the 15th century. Hmm. Well, and also there's a kind of movement from using papyrus for your books. There was a time when animal skin was very commonly used for books. And then, you know, paper ended up being a much cheaper alternative that you could get in vast quantities ultimately. Yeah, and a lot less bloody as well. Papyrus was relatively easy to make. You you collected papyrus reeds, which had a kind of triangular section through the stem, and you cut them into strips, and you laid out two layers of strips, uh, one running top to bottom, another running left to right, and then pressed them together, and that was your sheet of papyrus. But parchment meant that you had to raise a sheep or a goat or a calf and then slaughter it usually less than a year of age, so that its skin, you know, you didn't want any uh, gashes, any deformities in the skin, so you, t- you tended to slaughter them younger. You then had to soak the skin in this bath of lime and other slightly unpleasant chemicals. Uh, you had to scrape the hair off, you had to stretch it, you had to kind of polish it. It took a really long Yikes. time to make. Yeah. In fact, in the in the archaeological record, there's a very distinct move from slaughtering older cattle to younger cattle, because Parchment was just so important. Whole herds of cattle would be slaughtered younger than they would have been in the past in order to satisfy the demand for parchment. And to just add to the disgustingness of all this, if you (laughs) go and look at some of those old books, you can see hair on the pages that comes from the animals because it's really, really hard to get all of the hair off. That's exactly right. Actually, I bought some parchment. I bought some papyrus and some parchment as I was writing the book, just because you don't see it. You know, you, it's not like you open a modern book and find a page made of uh, made of papyrus or parchment. Right. And the parchment is pretty grisly. If you hold it up to light, you can see the network of veins. And if you kind of angle it a bit, then you start to see the hair. You can feel the hair if you run, if you run your fingers across it. It's, it's unsettling, but it's really nice to write on. <laughs> so, um, so there's that. So when people started... Going to school en masse, you know, I think about the Industrial Revolution when there was uh, more time for education, uh, more people stayed um, in school for longer. What started happening to the book as it became literally like a cheap thing that for a dime or whatever, you could get a book and you could get a really, uh, you know, a, a thrilling one like, a, you know, a Dickens, you know, obviously wrote in installments, that kind of thing. How did we migrate into that time? Well, for the book, the main thing wasn't so much the change in use as a change in technology or a series of changes in technology. I mean, so the, the Industrial Revolution came along and we started 
automating all of the traditional parts of making a book. Mm -hmm. So every part of the making of the book, you started off with printing and then paper making came along and then uh, machines that could fold and sew and uh, cover books. All of these things were automated. And so the book didn't look much different. The books, you know, the textbooks that uh, children would have been using uh, during and after the Industrial Revolution wouldn't have looked greatly different to those from, the, you know, a century or two before. But the way they, the way they were made was quite different. And I think that was the big thing. So it's not like the book didn't change us in that period, but we changed it quite substantially. So what happens now that so many of the words we read aren't in books anymore? I mean, if you think about the words that a 12-year-old reads, I mean, they, they might read a certain number of books, but there's gonna, they're going to read a lot of text. They're going to read a lot of um, things on websites. How does it change that now so many of our words are online? I think language will be the thing, or it well is the thing that is perhaps changing as a response to this. If if you think of books as being the most formal sort of language, and maybe a text or a tweet being at the other end of the spectrum, then I think we have more opportunities to to express ourselves in language that's informal to a degree. I think the, the rise of emoji, the idea that, hmm. well, this seems to be a sort of a common thread at the moment, our, our emoji language. And the answer is, uh, they're communication, they're not language. I, I quite like Moby Dick. And a few years ago, I saw a project called Emoji Dick, which was <laughs> yes, the whole I've of Moby Dick it. translated into emoji. Yeah, <laughs> using the um, Amazon Mechanical Turk service where you, you, know, you can give work to people hidden behind an electronic API somewhere. So it's possible to do it but it doesn't read. There's, there's no language. There's no grammar to emoji. They are just pictograms. A funny thing is when hieroglyphs were first discovered, lots of archaeologists thought, well, this is a hawk. What does it mean? Oh, maybe it just means a hawk or things that are fast right, like right, a hawk. Right, right. It took a long time for people to appreciate that actually a hawk could be a particular sound, like a syllable as well. So hieroglyphs were much more complex than we thought they were for a long time. And emoji are not any more complex than we think they are. <laughs> they are <laughs> they are just symbols. And although they'll gradually build up additional meanings, you know, some of them do already, um, they, they have kind of uh, meanings over and above what they look like, but it's still not possible, I think, to put together a kind of grammatical sentence, except if you're using them as, I, guess, I think the term is rebuses, you know, symbols for words, rather than an abstract symbol in and of itself. Do you feel like the the shift from books as we've known them for a long time to ebooks is the most significant thing to happen to the book in hundreds of years? Because I mean as you were saying, in a lot of ways books are an invention that has really stuck with us in in more or less the same form for a long time. I I struggle with this. I I think that reference books can safely die. I think they'd be far better served as web pages or a very, very kind of dynamic sort of ebook. But if you're looking at a novel, then yes, the technology that's generating the photons that are hitting your eyes has changed. But the content well, the content hasn't changed. I mean, most ebooks existed as physical books before they became ebooks. Right. And people still read. People now they read perhaps more than ever and they read in more places than ever. So again, I don't I 
it depends what you want to call a book. The physical book, yes, you'd have to say there is some threat, there's some likelihood that gradually as we read more and more stuff using e-readers, the need for a physical book will it'll just be squeezed you know maybe maybe we'll only take them when we know there won't be an internet connection somewhere or something like that you know perhaps they become right. almost like vinyl right. perhaps they become collectible things that right. sit on your bookshelves never to be read but right. i don't if you think of a book as a set of words strung together in a pleasing order or as a collection of facts or a, an educational tool then I'm I'm not sure there's much to say that ebooks are worse or they're they're just different. They're just another way of presenting us with that same information. And uh, I got to ask you, what would you say is your favorite book? Oof. Oh, I think Moby Dick has to be number one. Okay, but that's a case of the content, not the not the the physical you know book itself. My right, favorite right. copy of it is is a sort of yellowing, crappy old paperback. Keith Houston is the author of The Book, a cover-to-cover exploration of the most powerful object of our time. He also runs the blog Shady Characters. Keith, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Kara Miller, and you're listening to Innovation Hub. So now, something that's going to make bookworms everywhere happy. Researchers have discovered a link between reading and longevity. If you read more, there's a good chance you're going to live longer. The study, which was published in the journal Social Science and Medicine, found that book readers live 23 months longer, not controlling for factors like gender, race, and education. Avni Bavishi, who co-authored the study, says she's loved books ever since she was a kid. But as she went through school, reading time kind of got crowded out by classes and by other commitments. I was just a little bit curious because I was a heavy reader myself when I was a child, and it's died down a bit over the years as school's gotten more and more busy. And I was curious what kinds of benefits outside of the um, creative benefits and the vocabulary building that everybody hears about reading might present with. So when I was looking in the literature a little bit, I had seen that there were some mixed results in previous studies about whether or not reading might actually have the ability to extend your life. So I thought it would be an interesting thing to see if we could find um, a larger database that might help us sort this out. What Bavishi found, and this is a quote from the study, was that books are protective regardless of gender, wealth, education, or health. But note the word books, because apparently not all reading is created equal. Another interesting thing that we found is that the survival advantage was more substantial for reading books than it was for reading newspapers or magazines or periodicals. So that, we thought, might indicate that there's some sort of a cognitive difference between the two processes. And when we looked into seeing why reading books might uh, allow you to live longer, we found that people who were reading books experienced less of a cognitive decline as they aged compared to those who didn't. And we think that that might be the reason that they are living longer. Bavishi took her data from a national survey for retired people. On even-numbered years, the survey would ask retirees how much they read. On odd-numbered years, retirees answered questions that tested their cognitive abilities. She also measured how much someone might need to read to see any difference in lifespan. The more you read, the more of a benefit you get. We saw that even those who were reading on average three hours a week, so that's about less than 30 minutes a day, saw a significant improvement in their longevity. But Bavishi is quick to caution. Those three hours are only for book readers. 
Magazine aficionados need to read a lot more than three hours a week to see any benefit. Why the difference? We think that reading books really gives you a sort of uh, deep dive into the literature that really enhances the neural connections that you're making, and you're able to do a lot more in terms of preserving the cognitive function as you age. And there have been a variety of studies done previously that I've talked about how cognitive decline, whether it's through Alzheimer's or a variety of mechanisms, decreases your lifespan. So we think that reading books, because you have to get so much more invested, they're so much longer, there's often a lot more themes than you get in a magazine article. We believe that all of these factors make it more likely that you'll be more cognitively engaged when reading a book. I asked Bavishi, who calls herself a bookworm, whether she's been reading any more since she did the study. I've been trying to. I've definitely been trying to. <laughs> she told me the last thing she read was the book When Breath Becomes Air, a memoir by the neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi. We've got a link to Avni Bavishi's study on how reading books may affect your longevity that's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. And if you're really trying to fine-tune your reading material to maximize your longevity, I asked Bavishi, what's better, fiction or nonfiction? She says that has not yet been studied. Her work simply looked at books in general, but she pointed out that nearly 90% of what Americans read is fiction. So it's likely the vast majority of those who are benefiting from books are indeed consuming fiction. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.